Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Zeus is aspected to Jupiter on Thursday, 
Um, Apollo is aspected to the sun on Sunday, Artemis to the moon on Monday, Aries to Mars on Tuesday, Aphrodite to Venus on Friday, Mercury, sorry, Hermes to Mercury and Wednesday. And I pointed out that there are always 12. Initially, the 12 included Hestia, whereas in later times, Hestia was demoted and Dionysus came to take a place. And then as the practical component, I gave people an invocation to Demeter. So we started off by, um, by cleansing our hands with spring water, and then I intoned the, the Orphic invocation to, to Demeter, and I got everyone to repeat, to repeat after me. So I'd do one line, they'd do one line, and, and so on. Um, the idea was to do an invocation to heal the planet, because after all, Demeter is is a Mother Earth goddess figure, and given everything that's been happening, the the topics we've been discussing on previous shows, I think it's imperative for us to to heal the planet that we live on. So it just seemed to me that out of the twelve, it was most appropriate to call on her. Um, people there were were quite receptive. Um, it was it was a good audience. I felt very blessed to have had the opportunity to um. Um, to, to share the gods with um, with people who may not have all that much experience with them, and by showing them how easy it is, um, hopefully they will incorporate the worship of the Greek gods. Um, I don't want to I don't want to hijack this conversation for too long, but what's been my experience is that most people have their own practices, so they may not adopt Hellenic Reconstructionism wholesale, but what they'll do is that they'll incorporate aspects of it that work for them yes. into whatever practices they have. So, for instance, if they come from a Wiccan background, they may start off by casting a circle and calling the quarters first, and then calling on the god. And that's perfectly fine if they, if they feel more comfortable doing that. So, yeah, that, that was basically the... Um, angle that I was using with people just just to get them working with the Greek gods and I think working with them sort of a, a little bit is better than work not working with them at all if, if that makes sense so that, um, that makes sense. yeah so like I said I've, I've done quite a few things and they're all they're all up on Facebook I'm sort of very public with um with the things that I do but the only thing that's of relevance to this show is 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 that particular um that particular workshop well, thank you for sharing it. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, Bruce, how about with you? Well, I uh, also participated in our, our local Pagan Pride Day here, uh, Pagan Pride in East Tennessee. And um, I did a, a, a presentation on uh, basically the ancient Greek alphabet oracle, uh, which is described in my book. So, you know, many probably many more uh, pagans are following a, a Celtic or a um, Nordic or, or um, another sort of tradition rather than the Hellenic tradition. And so many people are, are familiar with rune casting and, and divination techniques like that. So um, what I wanted to do was present some of the uh, divination techniques that were used in ancient Greece, which are actually quite well documented in many respects and um, show them how, how, uh, how that was done in the past and how it could be done now. So I talked a little bit about um, the um, various sorts of practices for divination in ancient Greece and then, and then specifically about the ancient Greek alphabet oracle. 
which has a uh, an or- oracular text associated with each of the 24 letters of the ancient Greek alphabet. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think this is important because uh, divination really was central to ancient Greek uh, religion. Yeah. Um, people expected to be in contact with their gods and uh, to uh, get direct communication from their gods. So there was a variety of, of techniques that were used either by specialists or by, um, by everyday people. And so I think it's important to keep divination a part of, of um, Hellenic uh, neo-paganism. Um, I, I believe that as well. Could, could I comment on what Bruce said? Sure. Oh, please. Um, the, the, the thing that really excites me about what Bruce is doing is I always tell people to try a little bit of everything. It's like there's a spiritual smorgasbord out there. So you try a bit of everything, see what works with you. And people who I come across tend to be very familiar with tarot. They may be familiar with um, with the runes. If they're more from a New Age background, it might be um, angel oracle cards. Some people, some Thelemites might be familiar with the I Ching, which is um, Crowley's, Crowley's favorite system. And a lot of people aren't familiar with Greek divination. So the exciting thing about what Bruce is doing is he's bringing these exotic systems to public awareness so people can try them out, see what they think of them, and hopefully incorporate them into their daily practice. So I'm really excited by what Bruce is doing. I, I, think, it's, I think it's extremely important. I think it's well, extremely important as well. That, that is awesome. Um, and uh, is this something like, uh, for instance, uh, the work that you do, both of you publicly, in increasing awareness about uh, uh, the ancient uh, Hellenic uh, uh, worldview and spirituality, uh, is this something you do situationally when there's a pagan pride, or is it something you do systematically? Do you seek out situations where you can um, uh, provide this information uh, to people who might not have it? Um, in my case, it's, it's situationally. If there's a particular event that I get invited to, um, then I will try to incorporate some of the work that I do into it to bring it to awareness. I haven't had any um, systematic workshops set up in any venues in, in a number of years, so I just I, I just latch onto opportunities. Um, the next huge op and the, the thing with Pagan Pride Day is that it's an annual event. So Bruce had his in Tennessee. Um, I had mine in, in the Los Angeles, Orange County area. But they are literally all over the world. So they bring awareness of alternative spirituality to people. So the, the next big event that's coming up is Pantheon. And there was a bit of a bombshell a, a few days ago that this coming Pantheon is going to be the last one. It's going to be the 26th and the last one. They're, they're pulling the plug on it. Um, so Glenn Turner, the organizer, is leaving. Um, she's no longer going to be associated with it. I'm hoping that the committee that she has underneath her may try to keep the event running, but this this could be the end of it. So um, that's um, very sad. No one. Yeah, it, it, it is very sad. It's been an institution um, for well, yeah. this is going to be the 26th one. So for 25 years, it's been serving the needs of not just people in the Bay Area, but but for people all across America. Um, I, I've had the good fortune to have worked with Bruce a couple of times when he's traveled from 
from Tennessee to, to the Bay Area for Panticon. Um, Brandy comes down. Um, people come from, from all over America. Basically, you have 2,500 people, some of whom stay in the main hotel. Other people stay in overflow hotels, and there are numerous workshops running. It's, it, it's absolutely awesome. It's an amazing networking opportunity and an amazing opportunity for people to experience diverse spiritual modalities. So fingers crossed that, that our workshops um, are accepted for Panticon because it would be great to, to be there for the last one. I, I had a question about that. I submitted ideas in addition to the one that we're in together. I submitted, I believe, four other ideas or three other ideas, uh, and I haven't mm-hmm. heard anything other than that they received the ideas. That's pretty much uh, where that uh, stood. Um, so I've never dealt with them uh, before, uh, so I don't know what to what to expect. Do they, I believe I, November first. November first. Okay. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. I think that's and that's all. That's not a necessarily a firm date, but that's the target for for letting us know. Okay, great. Uh, because uh, um, if I can do the workshops, uh, we're, I'm definitely coming. I don't know if my wife will be coming with me, but I will be definitely coming. But if they don't choose any of the workshops, uh, I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to be coming. So uh, I'm waiting to hear from them so I can move forward and make. Uh, uh, plans and uh, so that yeah, was one of the questions it, I would estimate. Yeah, it's a long way to go for you to be just an attendee. Although, yeah. Although you probably would enjoy it, um, but it, it, it's much nicer to actually be presenting because you'd be able to to bring along um, your books and the like and promote those and, and hopefully sell a few, you know, re- recoup your expenses. I've been uh, uh, published in 15 anthologies so far in the past uh, two years. So I'd have a bunch wow. of books to do through. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, well, not as incredible. Uh, I, I haven't made it to a full book yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that what you guys have accomplished is phenomenally incredible because I, I love your books. And uh, so I'm, I'm aiming for that uh, next. Hopefully in 2020 uh, is the year I'll accomplish that. Great. Cool. How about you, Bruce? Do you uh, do this uh, situationally or uh, um, do you seek out opportunities? Uh, mostly situationally now. I um, um, am pretty busy. So uh, if, if anyone invites me, I, I, I pretty much always say yes. And um, uh, there are a few regular events that I try to attend. Uh, PantheaCon is one of them. Um, and, um, you know, the local Pagan Pride Day, and there's some festivals in the in the area uh, that I tend to uh, attend regularly. So I'm, I'm kind of almost always do some sort of workshop uh, or two at those types of events. But uh, beyond that, I, I, you know, have not really tried to, um, um, you know, seek out opportunities except for, you know, writing the books and publishing some, some papers besides the books as well. Um, so that for me is often the most effective way to um, to be able to get my some of my ideas and some of my work out in front of more people. Uh, but I, I like to do the workshops and, you know, I think in many ways uh, they can be, especially if you're teaching practical stuff, they can be much more effective um, or, you know, uh, group rituals and things like that as well. But um, I just kind of, 
enough opportunities come up, I guess, to, to mostly keep me busy. And you're, well, both of you are very scholarly in your work, and that shows even here where we're having discussions, the amount of preparation that goes into, uh, I know, uh, you know, Tony takes copious uh, notes that uh, I can always see him watching uh, every now and then as uh, he's uh, speaking, and uh, you're a scholar uh, by profession, so um, uh, I forgot what point I was trying to make, but uh, The information that you give out is quality uh, information. So the more that you can get out there and uh, and present it uh, personally to the public, uh, the better. Um, I find I'm kind of like at the opposite side of the spectrum. Uh, Not that there's no scholarship in in what I write, but I'm trying to appeal to like a mass audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm using the vehicle of like UFOs and uh, um, ancient aliens and things like that, uh, you know, to um, approach these uh, topics and to uh, deal with the, the same material uh, to get the, to get it out there. Uh, um, and in terms of my writing, in terms of my workshops, they're more traditional. But in terms of my writing, my my writing is out there with like the speculative. Uh, paranormal type of writing and uh, it's getting a lot of notice there people are very curious about uh, the gods and uh, the past few shows I've done that people have invited me to be the guest uh, most of the questions dealt with the uh, the Catherine you know with the Olympian gods mm-hmm. so there is right. a, a thirst a hunger uh, for more information about uh, uh, Olympus and uh, it's very satisfying to be able to provide something for that yeah, that's excellent. I mean, I think, you know, that, that the gods uh, appear in different manifestations. And uh, uh, as you know, probably I, uh, Carl Jung wrote about how flying saucers were sort of the yes. contemporary manifestation of, uh, of, of uh, epiphanies of the gods. Uh, something, you know, that I, I wanted to mention that was really a, something I decided uh, when I first started writing about especially about neo-pagan sorts of topics, because, you know, we have to go in part on our intuition and on our instincts and sometimes just make stuff up. But I thought it was important always to be clear about what I had some evidence for or what I had some um, uh, scholarly research behind and what uh, I didn't. And I thought that way people would know, you know, if they were reading, whether it was a ritual or some technique that I was describing, um, they would know, uh, you know, didn't some of it didn't sound right uh, or didn't ring true to them. At least they would know whether it was something that I had made up or whether it was something that was based on scholarly research. And that would enable them to make um, better decisions themselves, you know, and say, well, you know, that was. Maybe that was just something that, that, that appealed to him or that seemed right to him, and it doesn't seem right to me, so I'll try something different. Right. Um, or, you know, to know that they were, they were uh, you know, the, the scholars, of course, can be wrong too. But I think it's yeah. important to try and keep that, you know, that information uh, out there so people can make informed choices. Oh, I agree with you. And uh, uh, scholars uh, can be wrong, and also scholars can go out of fashion. Like uh, some scholars, uh, like uh, uh, Ellen Harrison, 
uh, I got a lot of really resonant information from her and with Burkert uh, that nowadays yes. will say, oh, yeah, they're, they're no longer considered valid. But uh, some very profound spiritual truths uh, were revealed to me when I was studying their work. Uh, so uh, I still refer to it as well, because in my personal practice, uh, their interpretations, although not 100 percent correct, were correct enough for me on certain points uh, where it's worked uh, throughout my entire life effectively. Yes, and I think they had very good instincts. So, um, you know, I agree with that, 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 that they had very good instincts. And, and I find them also uh, very informative for my work, work as well. And Tony, even in private conversations, you cite work. So you are a scholar, <laughs> very much so at heart as, as well. How about, what are your views on that? Um, well, I'd like to share a, a couple of short anecdotes. There's one, I'm, I can't remember if I've shared this on air or not, but um, in the mid-90s, I was still in Sydney, and we had meetups in Australia for pagans. There was pagans in the pub. A, a pub is like a sports bar. And there was pagans in the pub, sorry, pagans in the park. So I would go along to this one meeting um, near Central Station, which is um, you know the, the main station for, for Sydney. And the way that it worked is people would sit around and we would nominate an object as the talking stick. So while someone was holding that talking stick, they had the right to speak and everyone else had to listen, had to listen. So on this one occasion, the topic of conversation was on pantheons. So everyone was asked to talk about which pantheons they like to work with. So bear in mind, this is Sydney in the mid-90s. It's, it's now over 20 years later. But the thing is that there were a couple of people who said that they were drawn to the Celtic pantheon but didn't really know much about it. A couple of people said that they were drawn to the Egyptian pantheon but really didn't know very much about it. One guy said that he would go to the ocean and feel an energy there. And that's basically what the divine was to him. Um, but the thing is that the one pantheon that most people talked about resonating with was the Greek pantheon. So in Sydney, people were familiar with the Greek gods, to the exclusion of, um, of virtually everything else. And that made me realize how important they were. The thing is that, you know, up until the mid 1950s, sorry, the, the mid um, 20th century, a classical education was the standard. And as part of yeah. a classical education, you would you would learn um, Greek and Latin literature. So everyone was familiar with the gods. Plus, um, you'd have the gods appearing on various television shows and the like. So people were very very familiar with them. So my focus has been largely towards the Greek gods, but have also branched into the Egyptian gods as well. Um, I, I just realized that that was a way that I could relate to most people. They, they seem to resonate with the Greek gods. And the other short anecdote that I wanted to share was that in the early 2000s, I went to an event in Australia where the featured guests were Gavin Bone and Janet Farah. And they're absolutely incredible. And if you have the opportunity to listen to them, um, do a ritual with them, then by all means, grab it. They're absolutely amazing. But one thing that Gavin 
said in one of his talks that really stuck out to me was he said that if you want to increase your knowledge base, don't read books by pagan authors. Read books by academics. He said yes. that's where you're going, you're going, you're going to learn the, the bulk of your knowledge. So, you know, I've had like a, a number of people that have pointed me to the path that I should be on. I, I knew that I had to primarily work with the Greek gods and I knew that I should be focusing more on scholarly literature than anything else. Um, a, a lot of um, uh, new age literature or, or even pagan literature tends to be very wide-eyed. I mean, you, you look at the writings of um, uh, the guy that wrote The um, the White Goddess. God, I've got a mental blank. Um, Robert Graves. Came up with, Robert Graves, yeah, that's right, yeah. So he, he came up with the idea of the triple goddess and everything else, but he freely admitted that he wasn't a scholar. He was a poet. He was a so poet, he yeah. Tried to, yeah, he tried to synthesize all this information, but a lot of people have latched onto his ideas as being factual rather than romantically poetic. So um, I mean, it's basically how I got onto my path, the idea of focusing on Greek stuff and focusing on scholarly, scholarly literature. Um, In fact, uh, Robert Graves, yes. He, he ahead, even, at, I was going to say, he even uh, admitted at one point that he was kind of poking fun at the scholars by, you know, making up references and things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it, that was just really almost almost a kind of performance art for him. Um, but there is, you know, it is also uh, his works uh, do have a lot of genuine references in them, too. And yeah. so, um, you know, you can follow out some of the references and find some cases where he's, uh, many cases actually, where he's, he's in fact, uh, again, I think he's got very good instincts, but um, no, he's not a scholar by any means. But that is the basis for really a lot of uh, neo-pagan spirituality. Yes, it is the basis. And does that necessarily make it wrong? I've often wondered uh, in the long run, because people's spirituality is uh, informed uh, by many different uh, sources, uh, some of them internal. And uh, well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I would actually, I'm, I would probably have to think a little bit about this before I would want to defend it too far. But I could make an argument that Robert Graves was a was a theurgist. Um, okay, I he, like that. In his poetry and in many of his other writings, I think he was inspired. And um, you know, but I, but I but whether that just came naturally to him or whether he he did anything specific to get to get that inspiration that I, that I don't know. But um, um, yeah, I think his, the reason that the white goddess and um, his uh, collection of the Greek myths um, and his poetry speaks uh, so much to people is I think because it's inspired, you know, he said at one point that true poetry will make the hair on your neck stand up. And uh, some of his poetry does that for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's a sign that the that the divine is present. And um, so I think at at some level he was either an instinctive or perhaps uh, even a, a practicing theurgist. 
some of his information led me to uh, the source material, and I initially thought uh, that it was among the information that was uh, that he had made up. Uh, but no, it turned out to be true. There, there were references to Hercules, and uh, one of them was that uh, the Celts had an old man, Hercules, that had like a chain uh, coming out of his uh, tongue that bind other people, and uh, that turned out to be a true reference. A Roman uh, writer preserved it, um, the the story, and uh, he had some other Hercules references that initially, again, I thought that they were uh, poetic uh, imagination, uh, and then uh, years later, I ran across uh, the actual source. So uh, even though he did uh, invent things, uh, maybe to poke fun at uh, scholars, uh, there, there is a lot of real scholarship there, and it's quite an accomplishment. His Greek myths are, it's an indispensable part of any uh, uh, person's library if they're into the Dodecathlon. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, well, what did Homer and Hesiod do? They made stuff up, too, you know? Yes. Um. Now, I found uh, recently in my in my writing that um, my publisher is much more interested in my personal firsthand experiences than in, you know, my presentations on, uh, um, you know, what the realities of antiquity uh, may have been. Um, and so my past uh, several uh, submissions uh, have been about my personal experiences uh, internally and externally uh, through synchronicities uh, or, and you know, other encounters like I've shared uh, uh, here. So that's quite a shift for me. And uh, part of me is not really uh, comfortable with it yet. You know, I'm, I'm writing it, but uh, it, it's, it's a very odd uh, thing. Um, you know, to be asked uh, to, you know, contribute something that, you know, isn't scholarly or based on things that people can look up because it happened internally. I try to convey in my description uh, as much factual information, you know, that somebody might not know uh, to give them points of reference that they can uh, look up. Uh, but uh, I, part of me feels like now I'm becoming part of that mythology, <laughs> you know, that's uh, floating around about uh, the Olympians. So uh, um, do, do you have that experience when you write about your uh, personal experiences? Do you want me or Bruce to answer? Uh, whoever would like to answer. Okay, um, I might I might, I might start then. I actually wrestled with that issue in Greco-Egyptian magic. When I was putting the book together, I ran the workshops with a number of groups um, up and down the east coast of Australia and also ran the workshops with a number of groups in the United States. And what I found was that individual results tended to be very different. So some people would have incredibly elaborate experiences while other people's experiences might be more a matter of feeling. I remember there was one guy who was a computer programmer who he was very left-brained. He wasn't able to actually see anything through his third eye like other people were, but he felt the energies and he enjoyed the feeling of, of being present in the energies. And um, so like I said, Visions varied from person to person. So what I did was that I tried to pick out commonalities in those yes, visions. So I'd, mm -hmm. so, I'd, so I'd come up with a, with, with, with a core experience. So 
if people were to then pick up the book, um, I'd tell them, you're probably going to get results along these lines. And I'd give like a, a bare bones outline of, of what they could expect. So for some people, they may get something very similar to that. For some people, it might be a little bit less. Some, for some people, it may be a, a lot more ornate. And the, I've always been challenged by people putting in their own experiences because it, it's all incredibly subjective. Right. So I wanted to skew what I was producing more towards um, something approaching objectivity by by distilling the results from, from a large number of people. Um, I have come across a number of books where people have either included diary entries or basically diary entries or, or, or ritual notes, but they're all very personal. They're all very subjective. So um, you're not sure how much you're learning about the ritual and, and the results it generates and how much you're learning about the psychology of the person involved. Right. And uh, so, that's something I wonder too. Uh, yeah, you know, so if that, I could that, add to that. Go ahead. I, 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 was just, I just about finished, and I was just trying to point out that, that that's why I tend to shy away from talking about my own personal ritual results because, you know, your mileage may vary. As, as they say in this country. Um, I, I don't want to sort of impose my views as being the only results that people are going to get. So I feel very blessed that I've had a large group of people who've done my workings and have debriefed and have shared their experiences so I could come up with it with um, um, a theme, a, a come up with general themes for, for what can be expected. That's basically all I wanted to convey. Thank you, Bruce. Yes, I, I really can't disagree with any of that. I, I think my own inclination is is um, not to talk too much about my own uh, subjective experiences, and because it's it's more my kind of scholarly habit to try and and uh, keep it impersonal. Um, and um, as as Tony said. Um, if you just if you describe your your own experiences, then you know readers may think they have to have those same experiences, or they're in some sense their experience is not valid or it's not normal or something like that. Whereas, especially with the sorts of things we're talking about, there is just an enormous range of um, individual variation. So um, I think. Um, if you can describe a variety of different experiences so people have some idea about what they can expect or, or, or how to help them interpret their own experiences, then I think that can, that can be uh, helpful. And, I mean, it's really the same, I think, in personal instruction, too. Uh, but at least if you're working with somebody um, and you can discuss your experiences, if they have some breadth of experience, they can – you know, tell you how your experiences fit in sort of the, the, the whole range of, of experiences that people tend to have. So um, nevertheless, it is, I, I realize, a, a problem that, that people, I think, are much more interested in the personal narratives. And uh, so in that sense, it communicates better if you can, if you can discuss those personal experiences. Uh, but it is, a, it is a little bit difficult to do it 
while still keeping um, um, the uh, generality and um, a certain amount of objectivity. Uh, you see some of this in, uh, for instance, in the psychological literature, uh, where essentially um, cases are, are discussed. And um, uh, if you present, you know, at least a, a handful of cases, you can begin to see some of the variation. And then you can also have some discussion around the, the presentation of these cases about, well, this person had this experience, but other people have had a different experience in this way, or they had something similar, but, but different in the, these respects. And so um, that is one way of, of doing it, is structuring uh, a presentation around a series of, of essentially case studies like that, or individual experiences with some, some indication of a variability. Those are really good uh, points. I know in uh, the, the Order of the Golden Fleece, uh, which is a group that formed uh, around my uh, workshops, um, what started happening after time was, as Tony described, the experiences, although they were different, um, they had common threads. And you could see the common threads as people share their experiences going from person to person so that a theme developed like with everybody there. Uh, and then we began seeing this as a form of uh, communication. Uh, and we started focusing on it. A lot of our materials started coming from those uh, um, commonalities. Uh, I have been like playing with my brain since I uh, have been very young, you know, just uh, working on my dreams, uh, meditating, you know, doing things like that, and naturally, too, you know, without any substances uh, uh, to help me along. So what I've been trying to do now that it seems that my subjective experiences are of interest is trying to describe, like, the process, like, you know, uh, what is waking consciousness? What's the hypnagogic and uh, hypnopompic? Are they the same? Are they different? Uh, wh what about lucidity and astral projection? Um, you know, trying to basically show how, like, the more dreamlike experiences, it is very difficult to tell if you're dreaming or if you're, you know, awake, uh, you know, unless uh, something happens, like you switch perspective where you're an observer instead of a, a participant or you're both at the same time or uh, somebody transforms into somebody else, uh, right, you know, right before your eyes. But this territory is familiar territory. It's been described by countless people since the dawn of uh, of time, and it forms the basis of uh, uh, shamanism and other um, you know, esoteric arts. So it's part of the human heritage that uh, our busy lifestyle and endless distraction uh, doesn't really allow people to experience something that's free and natural to them or, or to interpret it. So, um, yeah, again, my subjective experiences are my own. I learned from them and, and so forth. And uh, again, if people want to hear them, I'll be glad to share them. But uh, in, in terms of like using them, uh, that's how I'm trying to use them, I'm trying to use them to, to basically try to provide some basic mapping uh, and I'll point out that it's very inaccurate mapping. It's like those maps uh, where there were like uh, sea serpents and harpies and things like that at the edges of the maps, and there were like blurred borders. But at least some some sort of structure that somebody can use to navigate in their initial excursions into these uh, 
you know, territories and uh, also the types of entities they're likely to encounter and, you know, uh, and so forth, uh, because it is, it's very subjective, uh, but at the same time, it's there and humanity's been tapping into it again since the dawn of time. Um, Hercules, I wanted to talk about what you first what you first mentioned. You um, described some of your experiences running group rituals. That was actually a blessing for me as well, where you'd have a group of people who didn't know each other doing a working, and then you'd have two people who didn't know each other describing almost the same yeah. vision and just seeing their eye contact, thinking, whoa, we just experienced the same thing and we didn't know each other. Because you expect a bit of commonality with people who are somehow connected, but these are people who, who weren't connected at all. And just going off on a bit of a tangent, this whole issue has been explored in reconstructionist communities they talk about upgs and vpgs so a upg refers to unverified personal gnosis so it's basically a vision or experience that you have as a result of some sort of ritual so you channel information about a particular god but it's material that's only supposed to be subjective it's material that's that's there to help you on your path. It's not necessarily material that you should be shouting off the rooftops and, and sharing with other people. Um, by way of comparison, there's VPGs, which refers to verified personal gnosis, where you may channel information about a particular God and it feels weird, but then you verify that information either by going into going into the mythology of the god and you may find something that you missed so all of a sudden you realize oh okay so that god was associated with that particular function so this vision is quite plausible the other exciting thing is where you have two people having visions and they're totally not connected and they see a god performing various functions that they're not supposed to perform but you've got two disconnected people experiencing the same sort of thing so all of a sudden you realize well hey maybe this is a function that hasn't been described before and bruce actually described something a few months ago which really hit me hard um, i've always had this prejudice that i look at look at spiritual writings that are hundreds if not thousands of years old and i think of them as being particularly real and i mm -hmm. tend to um discriminate against stuff that's that's channeled now and Bruce pointed out that that the early stuff was channeled as well right so so new stuff doesn't necessarily have to be any less worthy than the old stuff so you know I tend to be um I, I tend to look at the newer stuff a little bit more um a little bit more seriously but having said that there's thousands and thousands of pages which have been channeled and I would consider most of those channeled writings to be spurious. You know, after all, you've got people who have channeled, you know, the spirits of Albert Einstein and, and other geniuses, and basically all they talk about is the importance of love and harmony. You know, if you channel Albert Einstein, you know, why not come up with a complete theory of general relativity? Something, something that would definitely prove that you've actually contacted the spirit of Albert Einstein, because all the all the channeled messages start to sound extremely similar. So I, I 
tend to look upon stuff like that as spurious. But I think amongst all that, there will be nuggets of gold, and it's up to us to find those. That's a very good point. And after Bruce comments on what you said, I'm, I'll, I'll comment on it. Those are very um, good points. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that you brought up some very interesting points um, about um, especially more recent channeled material. Um, I suspect that in many respects, recent channeled material is not that different from ancient material. And so, you know, what, what makes stuff that has spiritual importance different from the stuff that doesn't seem to have it? You know, and I think part of it is the understanding we come with. So in the ancient world, people mostly, if they were doing some sort of channeling, say, uh, they would be thinking they were in contact with some gods or diamonds. And um, so, in fact, I don't think they they might go for some insights into general relativity. But, um, you know, if you think that to take that example of somebody who says they're channeling Albert Einstein, well, what are they doing? Well, you know, they could, of course, be just making it up. They could be, you know, a fraud, basically. But if we assume that they're doing some kind of theurgy, then they are in contact with some sort of spirit. And um, it's probably a I don't think it's, you know, uh, Albert Einstein's um, ghost or soul or or spirit. Uh, But it probably is a diamond in the lineage of some god, maybe Apollo. Who knows? You know, that you'd have to try and find that out. And so, um, to my mind, what that what that spirit is saying? Okay, you're trying to get in touch with divinity. You're trying to get some help or insights. Um, this is what you need to know. If it, you know, is more convincing if I call myself Albert Einstein. Sure, I'm Albert Einstein. But this is what you need to know. And maybe it is just a message of of love and harmony. But you know, frankly, that's probably what a lot of people need to need to learn. Um, so I think, you know, um, I think there, in some sense, you know, behind all of our pantheons, uh, there are the same gods there. And uh, many of the, the diamonds in the lineage of those gods are more um, uh, uh, culturally conditioned. And um, just like we talked about with flying saucers as being a, a modern manifestation of, uh, you know, the chariots of the gods or whatever. Um, I think that, you know, people uh, that we might channel like Albert Einstein to take that example, uh, that's really just sort of a modern cultural manifestation of probably um, diamonds um, in the lineages of gods that we would, we would recognize um, you know, and the gods don't always tell you what you want to know. So uh, they may they tell you in many cases what you need to know. And so um, I, you know, I guess what I would I would take almost any genuinely um, channeled text as valid. Now, it may have only personal relevance, as Tony said. Um, it may have only 
only relevant to that person. And I think that's an important distinction that's very hard to sort out is how much of this is something that is essentially the gods giving me information that I need as opposed to something that may be more generally valid. So, you know, uh, I've, we've talked before, I think, about uh, Jung's Red Book, which uh, is, a, is a very important channeled text, but um, a lot of it, I think, is relevant to Jung's psychological state in uh, 1913 to, to 1920, roughly, um, uh, when he did that work. And uh, it took decades, and arguably it's still going on, of separating out the stuff that was uh, mostly relevant just to Jung's psychological state at that time and, and the direction in which he needed to develop psychologically uh, from material that's relevant to all of us just by virtue of the fact that we're, we're human beings. And I think that that's you know, a problem with any, with any uh, channeled text like this. I think it's safest to assume this is for me, this is for me only. Um, and then if we do have some of the verifications that Tony uh, mentioned, then we can start thinking about, well, maybe, you know, there's, uh, it's not just about me. It may be uh, more, uh, a, a message that has more general applicability. Both of you had brought up uh, uh, verified personal ghosts and unverified, and you blew my mind because it, it helped me see that whole thing in a different way. Uh, when I talked about some of my early uh, channeling experiences uh, um, in New York when I was a, a teenager, and that was uh, the channel for a theosophical group. Um, so th that this whole topic uh, was mind-altering uh, to me in, to a very great degree, and I took it to, to heart. Uh, so um, I had a series of experiences that initially I was willing to uh, put down as uh, dreams or my mind communicating uh, with me, like, you know, in a, in a mythic way, which happens. Um, and then I started getting uh, synchronicities uh, that started showing me otherwise. And then uh, two um, people, uh, one who uh, had an offshoot uh, of the uh, Urantia book they started like a splinter group from the Urantia book and the other, a magician of my acquaintance for decades, he's been in and out of uh, um, the Hellenic communities under a variety of uh, names. Uh, both gave me the same message uh, from the same being that uh, I got in my meditations. Uh, and then again, the synchronicities uh, you know, continued for uh, weeks. Uh, so it's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so, they don't know each other, but they're communicating uh, with uh, the same God. And I'm getting whenever I sit too long on a piece of information uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll get it from both of them calling me up and telling me they got a message for me and I'll get a few synchronicities thrown into the mix for good. So what you <laughs> described, uh, I was able to, to, you know, to set up with the assistance of Olympus. Uh, so this way uh, it's clearer to me now. Uh, and again, the gods are enigmatic and they don't always tell you, you know, what you'd like to know. Uh, so that there's that. And some things don't make sense until afterwards. So, you know, worrying about them isn't very helpful at all. But, uh, uh, but I want to thank you for that because th that system has enabled me to move uh, 
forward uh, in a way that uh, um, you know fits the will of Olympus. And people are giving me things too that pertain to these synchronicities as well. So uh, it's a very powerful thing. And I want to thank both of you for you know opening my eyes and my mind to that. You're very welcome. There's no need to rediscover the wheel. And the idea of um, unverified personal gnosis and verified personal gnosis, that's something that's been part and parcel of reconstructionist communities, not just the Hellenic community, but happens, um, you know, the Norse communities, other communities that, that work with various gods. So it makes so much sense to tap into the, the various techniques that they've been using. But the other thing, um, you mentioned synchronicities. Thing is, when you're on a magical path, you expect things to happen that are that are unusual. Because the way that magic works is that um, every at every juncture, there's there's a there's a chance of something happening, something natural happening. By practicing magic, you increase the chances of that thing happening. So the thing is, with those synchronicities that you're talking about, they're things that could happen, but they're extremely unlikely. But by right. walking a bona fide magical path, you're increasing the chances of those synchronicities being able to manifest. And they're signposts, signposts that, that, that you're on the right path. And, and I was talking about verified personal gnosis before. You, you mentioned that there's this um, magician character who's been in and out of the Hellenic community for, for years. And there, means, there's yeah. another character. Yeah, and they're not connected in any way, shape, no. or form. And yet, and yet they're channeling exactly the same sort of material that you're channeling. I mean, you're being hit upside the head. Like, Hercules, yeah. pay attention. <laughs> As I was told, I can be difficult, and I, I admit I can be. <laughs> but, but um, I mean, they're, they're, they're hitting you upside the head, but in the nicest possible way. It's like this is important information for you, something that you have to incorporate into your path. Thank you. And Bruce? Yes, I agree with that. And, of course, my experience is also, you know, they, they start with a gentle tap and then they go to a two-by-four and, and then, <laughs> then more extreme means to, to get your attention. Uh, you know, uh, Carl Jung uh, uh, in the um, 1913 basically had a, several – very dramatic visions that lasted, uh, each one lasted several hours long. And um, they were just horrifying. He, you know, he saw um, Europe being covered by blood and uh, uh, he saw floods with just the water filled with corpses of, of people and animals and, and all of these various sorts of horrendous things. And he uh, was convinced that he was losing his mind. He was a very rationalist scientist, and um, you know he studied, of course, psychosis, and he was convinced that he was having a, a, a psychotic episode. Um, and then World War One broke out, and he realized that all of these visions he had been having were connected with with the outbreak of World War One, and other people were having visions of the same sort. So this was one way that his uh, personal gnosis was was verified. It was verified by the world events that took place, and so um, and in fact that's when he began to develop the whole notion of synchronicity. Um, 
and there are many other instances too that are described in in his writings but um that is certainly synchronicity is certainly one of the ways that we that we um that we verify the uh, insights and the the intuitions that we get we get from it and i think this is you know this is part of the whole practice of of theurgy is um you know to uh, and if you work in a theurgical group too this is a situation where you can uh discuss the various experiences you've had and um um people will perhaps know from their own experience if they've if they've had similar visions or 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 communications or they may know other people or they can um um, you know, do some investigation in mythology or in literature to see if this is something that people in the past have uh, have also discovered. And um, so it, it, it's a it's an investigative process, I think, and it's um, you know it's um, it's a part of the um, practicality of, of doing this and making it work. Oh, indeed, and it seems to suggest, uh, sometimes to me at least, that uh, time is we understand it is an illusion, um, because thing, things seem, to, you know, when when things just pop into, um, you know, your existence when they need uh, to be there, and then other inexplicable things all of a sudden turn around and, and make sense. I'll give one uh, example. Uh, throughout my life, I've been, you know, I, I love reading and I have thousands of books, but I, I've been collecting certain books and uh, never got around to reading them. You know, I, I thought the books were important and I wanted to read them, but I just never got around to reading them. But I collected them and several times I got rid of books, you know, thousands of books uh, by, uh, you know, donating them to charity or opening up a bookstore. You know, I did, I did all sorts of things with books, but those I, I held on with. Uh, I held on to, rather. And those are the books I need for what I'm doing now. And I've managed to accumulate, you know, just about everything in print <laughs> uh, that I need to be working on now. But that's not something I understood rationally or at all. Um, but uh, throughout my life, some part of me knew or some part of me was prompted to pick these things up and not get rid of, not get uh, rid of them. So, uh, there, there seems to be like a purpose that something is aware of and it, it passes throughout your life in a nonlinear and inexplicable way. It's just one of the many threads that make up the tapestry of your life until the moment where it makes sense. And then it seems like it was planned or contrived um, because th- there'd be no other way that this would like form into something. I don't know if I'm making sense now, um, but uh um, it, it, it seems like there's something beyond linear time and that I've come to see it as that's where the gods are. They're, they're, you know, they're beyond linear time. They're in a timeless place, like the dream time uh, of the Australians. You're actually making perfect sense. Plato said that time was the moving image of eternity. And one thing that I found um, working rituals is that Sometimes the results of a ritual will manifest before you've done the ritual. And if time was linear, that's not possible. It's a case of I may plan on doing a ritual at a particular point in time and I start manifesting those results before the ritual has taken place. It's like, okay, it's worked, but I haven't done it yet. But that means I better make damn sure (laughs) 
that I that I do it right at 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 the appointed time. And the thing is that time does appear to be linear for people who are living a mundane experience. But once you, I don't want to say elevate yourself above the mundane, but but basically by practicing magic, practicing theurgy, you are elevating yourself above the mundane. That's when things start to become really interesting. You start to realize that time isn't linear. Um, Then you open yourself up to synchronicities. You open yourself up to all sorts of things that are that are unusual, that are beyond the experience of, of ordinary people. Um, I think everyone experiences synchronicities every once in a while, but once you're on a spiritual path, then you start to get synchronicities far more often, and that yeah. serves as and as we said before, that serves as verification that you're on the right path. But yeah, um, my experience is that time is not linear because. Um, and the best example of that, I'm just repeating myself here, is that at times I have gotten the results of rituals before I've worked them. That That is incredibly awesome. Someone just dropped uh, from the board. Who's still here? Um, I'm still here. Okay, Bruce seems to have dropped uh, off. Um so, uh, Bruce, if you're out there, give a call back. Uh, it happens occasionally. Well, it, it, well, it's actually 7 o'clock. Don't you need to have a break anyway? Uh, sure. Or, or, <laughs> do, me... or do we keep going? No, I, I just thought if you have a break at 7 o'clock, that'll give him a few minutes to, to come back on. But, you know, otherwise we can keep going, and then he can play catch-up when he gets back. It's, it's your show. Okay. It's your choice. Uh, let's uh, talk for a few more minutes, see if he comes back, and then we'll take a break. And uh, – um, what what you pointed out is uh, is uh, now that I'm looking at it in the way that uh, you uh, have demonstrated it, um, that makes uh, sense, and I can come up with an example. Uh, you know, also uh, at one point I was communicating with my guides. This is going back, uh, you know, many years, um, and he's back. Let me get him back in the board. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> Don't know what happened there. Yeah, it 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 happens. Blog Talk Radio is fixing some of its problems, uh, and some of them are indeed fixed. Uh, I don't have to be as creative as I normally am in trying to keep the podcast together. Um, but uh, there's some quirks that new quirks that have developed. And one of them seems to be that people drop off the board for no discernible reason. So there's a notice on here that they're working on it. So hopefully those, those will be going also. Um, Tony had shared um, about how uh, his experiences showed him that time is not linear because uh, uh, he gets the results of ritual sometimes before the ritual takes place. So we're just talking about that. But Tony also pointed out that we're at midpoint. So how about we take a short uh, break of around six, seven minutes, and then we'll be back to continue. Sounds good. Sounds okay, great. we're going to look to Dave the Bard's Cauldron Born because I happen to like that song. Uh, talk to everybody in a few yeah. minutes. Sunset moonrise And see how the land is made In silver hue 
come with me and let me show There are others just like you Who feel the powers of earth, sea and sky Of dragon and fairy and shades of the night Hear the call of our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing stone Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Deep within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when cold the powers of earth, sea and sky, of dragon and fairy and shades of the night. He calls to his ancestors of blood and bone, of womb and tomb and standing stone. Lady, stir your cauldron well, chant your words and sing your spell. Deep within Of the cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your Keridwen's children, the cauldron born. Bye. 
the powers of earth, sea and sky Dragon and fairy in shades of the night We call to our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing stone Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Deep within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your carried when's children The cauldron born Oh lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your carried when's children The cauldron born The cauldron born, cauldron born, with a cauldron born, cauldron born, with a cauldron born. Greetings and welcome back to Pride of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and we are at the midpoint of our Theurgy Forum. Today, our panelists are Tony Miroswiki and Bruce McLellan, who is also known as John Opsopaus. Greetings and welcome back. Greetings. Hi, Hercules. Hi. Um, Before our break, uh, Tony had uh, shared uh, something, a perspective, Um, and uh, some of the experiences that he had that uh, support that perspective uh, based on the fluid uh, nature of time or the um, nonlinear aspects of uh, time. And uh, during the break, I contemplated uh, that as I will contemplate tonight in my meditations, uh, and uh, it's expanded my uh, picture. So I'm looking forward to hearing Bruce's thoughts on uh, time. Uh, yes, I well, much of my perspective comes uh, essentially from Neoplatonism, and I, I think um, you know the Neoplatonists had an important insight into uh, the gods, and that is that the gods are eternal in a literal sense of being outside of time. Uh, time does not does not even apply to them. Um, uh, you know, I make the analogy uh, that gods are like the triangle or the number three. Um, they don't come into existence or go out of existence or do anything in time. Uh, nevertheless, they they govern what takes place in time. And uh, the diamonds that are in the in the um, lineages of the gods, they are in time, and so they are the, more the actors within our, our spatial spatial temporal world. Um, so, I mean, one way I like to think of it is by analogy with uh, something like uh, Kepler's laws of planetary motion, 
uh, those laws, again, they're just mathematical principles. They're completely timeless. Nevertheless, they govern the movement of the, of the planets around the sun. And, um, you know, so you can say, well, you know, do Kepler's laws know where the planets were 100 years in the past? Well, sort of. I mean, you can, you know, extrapolate backwards from their position now by Kepler's laws and find out where they'll be 100 years ago. But you can also extrapolate forward in time just as well and find out where they will be 100 years in the future. So in a sense, Kepler's laws are completely timeless. And in that sense, they know um, all of the all of the motion of the planets uh, into the uh, infinite past or the infinite future. And I think, you know, there's something similar going on with um, the uh, eternal or atemporal gods. So that raises all sorts of interesting questions about uh, free will and destiny and fate. And uh, the Neoplatonists had a lot to say about it and a lot to think about it. And there's some fairly subtle, subtle thinking about it. But I think one thing that does come out of uh, many of the ancient philosophies, Stoicism also, um, is that uh, individuals do have a destiny. And I think, um, you know, that's you know part of what we're 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 discovering when we do theurgy is we're trying to get some help with understanding what our destiny is because our destiny is probably going to happen anyway but it'll go more smoothly if we know where we're going if we're not being dragged you know as the in the ancient saying dragged by our forelock uh <laughs> if we're going uh intentionally and and with some consciousness so um, divination, of course, can help with that, and, and theurgy, I think, can especially help. We can we can find out what the gods want of us. Um, so um, you know, I think it's uh, you know what you're talking about uh, the books. I think was is very interesting, and you got me thinking about that because um, I uh, books, of course, are very important to me as well, and. Um, not just for their information, but for their existence and for their presence. Yes. And I wanted to, 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 to bring up two analogies. You know, you talked about having just the books you need that you, you bought at some time in the past. You know, and it made me think of there's um, many animals, uh, if they get sick or, or have some sort of uh, complaint, they know which herbs or plants to eat to try and cure that, that condition. And they have this uh, sort of, well, is it an instinct? I don't know. Um, when people do this, especially people that are deeply in touch with their environment, they may say, I, well, I talk to the plant spirits and I ask the plant spirits if this plant is going to be good for me or not. And maybe that's what the animals do too. Maybe they're, they're communicating with the plant spirits and um, finding out which plants are best for them. But, you know, that's for things like plants or herbs. But what about books? You know, I think books have spirits as well. And often a book will call out to you and say, you may not know it now, but you're going to want me later. And um, I always follow my instinct um, when it comes to buying a book like that um, because it has generally turned out to be true. And um, 
some of the books I keep, uh, again, some of them I haven't read, uh, but I call them talismanic, talismanic books because they sit on my shelf and they exert their good influence just by being there. And certain books, uh, certain, certain books I keep from my child for, childhood, for example, because they're very important to me, and they also have that sort of talismanic power about them. But then also, you know, books that, that uh, I've bought more recently. Um, so I think we, um, you know, maybe it's the gods are guiding us to, uh, to pick those books. Um, some of them nag us, right? They sit on your shelf. Uh-huh. And, uh, you keep feeling, feeling guilty. You haven't read it. And then one day you finally give up and read it, and you find out why it was so important that it be right. on your shelf. <laughs> so I think, you know, um, yeah, well, maybe that's all I should say about it. But I think that that's, uh, you know, um, part of it is, is the gods guiding us to fulfill our destiny. And um, one way they do it is, for instance, by guiding us uh, with to, to, to get books. I'm sure Tony has uh, something uh, to add to that. I certainly do. Tony? I must confess that I um, share Bruce's vice in loving books. Um, it's it's a guilty pleasure of mine. I I particularly love going to secondhand bookstores and, and looking for bargains. And like Bruce, there are times that I've picked up a book and um, sometimes I'll think, I don't actually need this book but I feel like I will need this book in the future. So there are some books that you need immediately, other books that you buy, and, and you may not get to them for, for two, three or more years. But eventually, like Bruce said, when you open it, you start going through it, you realize, ah, so this is why I had to get that book. And along those lines, um, there's a story about Shirley MacLaine. Before she started on her, on her spiritual path, the story is that she walked into, into the Bodhi Tree bookshop in Hollywood and she was wandering through and a book launched itself off the shelf and landed at her feet. She picked it up and thought, whoa, this is pretty cool. Um, she bought the book and that was the book that started off her spiritual path. No, I don't know what the book was. But you know, the, the point is that sometimes books call out to you. In her case, it was it was blatantly obvious. So it may not have been enough for her to just notice a book on the shelf. She needed it to um to fly out of the feet. Um, the other thing I wanted to say regarding what 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 Bruce was telling us about plant spirits is um in the Amazon there are thousands and thousands of plants. And one thing that I've heard about ayahuasca is that it's almost miraculous that the um, indigenous peoples living in the Amazon picked out two plants. One was a source of DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is um, a powerful hallucinogen that we have receptors for and our body actually produces in our brains. And the other one is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor because DMT on its own isn't orally active and so it only lasts a very short amount of time in the body, they say 15, 20 minutes. But if you mix it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, then all of a sudden it's the body can't break it down and it's in your system for six to eight hours. So again, um, they, they claim that the plant spirits talked to them and told them which particular plants they needed. So in this case, it's not just a matter of picking out one plant out of thousands. It's a matter of picking out two plants 
out of thousands to come up with the um, with, with the sacred brew um, that, that's, that's known wow. as ayahuasca. So working with plant spirits is is incredibly important, um, and I'm really intrigued by Bruce's um, suggestion that possibly animals can tap into um, plant spirits and, and get information. I mean, dog, dogs and cats see more things than we're able to see. So, for instance, you can be in a, um, um, in a room and a dog or a cat might be staring at something moving. You see its head moving, its eyes are tracking something that you can't see. So they're capable of seeing things that, that we're not able to see. I remember reading an account of um, some guy, he was a, a preacher, I think, and he, con- he astral projected out of his body. So he came up out of his body and he said that his dog woke up and saw his sleeping body and saw his astral body and started to become very scared because it's two versions of his master. So dogs and cats see things that we can't see. So it is quite plausible that they can actually tap into plant spirits and work out which particular plant would be best for them in, in their moment of need. That's a very good uh, point, and uh, I've had cats and dogs, well, dogs more recently than uh, cats. Cats I've had forever, uh, but yes, they seem to sense things at times, and also they serve as a confirmation. Sometimes I'll sense things, and I'm used to people not being able to sense uh, some of the things that I'm sensing, but the animal will sense it, so that's a confirmation I need that whatever I'm experiencing is not uh, a product of my brain alone. Uh, And what Bruce had said about books uh, before, um, uh, I had to laugh at one point because uh, I also refer to the books as having uh, talismanic properties and that their mere presence is uh, enough for some reason until I uh, need them. So it's very comforting to hear both of you you know, share those uh, thoughts because I share them as well. I, I experience them in that way. Maybe I could add something to that. Um, You know, um, when Carl Jung made his Red Book, which is a, you know, a a record and elaboration of his theurgical experiences, he uh, recommended to other people that they should make their own Red Books. This, again, comes back to the personal versus uh, universal aspects of it. But um, in one quote I love, he, he wrote to somebody uh, and he said, you know, you should make this this uh, beautiful book and, um, you know, uh, 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 put great care into it. For in this book is your soul. And, wow. um, um, I, you know, I, people have talked about the power that emanates from Jung's Red Book. And um, I think he was speaking about his own Red Book, too, when he when he said that. Now, you have brought up destiny, uh, and uh, the, the conversation seems to be going in that uh, direction. Have you had a sense of your destiny? Because you, you definitely have destinies, and uh, you know, I can see the destinies unfolding um, through your works. Um, and as I'm getting to know you, I, I see the, the life force behind uh, those destinies. Uh, do you have a sense of your destiny? And if so, how clear is that sense? I, maybe I, I can start a little bit. I, 
you know, I um, I won't say it's clear in the sense of being laid out before me in all my in all its details, but I have several clear directions, I think, and and um, you know, I I I can I feel them. Um, I can see fairly far ahead on them. And in a sense, they're also showing me the next step in each case. And I, and I find when I take those steps, uh, I'm totally energized. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm moving along, uh, with the flow. And, um, whereas if it's, if it's, if it's not so much, uh, then, then, then I don't have that same amount of energy. So, um, and I do, of course, do divination and uh, theurgy to try and, and ask these things too. I will, I will, I will ask the gods. You know, is this something that I should be doing? Is this is this part of my destiny, and or should I be doing it uh, in any case? And I tend to follow that that advice, but um, but I feel like you know there's a real sense of of a direction um, that especially I've been feeling that very much. So lately, and so it's uh, it's kind of in in my mind. That that is awesome, Tony. How about you? Um, I'm going to have to go to Philema to um, explain my understanding of, of destiny. Um, okay. Crowley spoke in terms of the difference between free will and true will. In any so in any given situation, you have free will. So you can do whatever you want in a in any situation. Well, that's actually not quite true. You can't do whatever you want in a particular situation because society places constraints on us. There are behavioral constraints that we have. So, for instance, if someone is nasty to us, you know, you have the option of either walking away or confronting the person or maybe even, you know, pushing them or hitting them. But that's as far as you can go. But if you had total free will, you could pull out, pull out a gun and shoot them. But obviously that's... That's not acceptable. So you have this range of um, possible directions that that you can move um, in any given situation. Crowley talked in terms of true will. True will is the path that you should follow, which is the right path. It's the path that is divinely ordained for us to follow. And the way you find that correct path is by gaining access to your higher self, your holy guardian angel, um, or, or your personal daemon. Contact is made um, halfway up the tree of life in the sphere of Tifereth, which corresponds to the heart chakra. And basically, the holy guardian angel forms a conduit between us and the divine, and it allows for a free flow of information from the divine to us so that we know what we should be doing in, every, in, in any given situation. One of the messages which Crowley um, channeled was that every man and every woman is a star. And what that means is you look up in the heavens and you see thousands and thousands of stars, all of them following their own paths. The point is that they're following their, their own paths without interference from any other stars, nor are they interfering with any other stars. So the point is that if every person follows their true will, then there's without interfering with anyone else, you've basically got this almost almost utopian society where people can can perform 
that can walk their own divinely ordained path and not interfere with anyone. Um, so destiny is basically the path that we should be on and, um, and knowing your true will, having access to your higher self or your holy guardian angel enables you to um, work out what that particular path is. Um, so starting off with that understanding, if we then go off tangentially, when you look through the Greek magical papyri, um, one thing that becomes very obvious is that we are um, constrained by our destiny. But there are spells there which enable you to go beyond your destiny. It's almost like rewriting your horoscope to a horoscope which is, which is far more favorable so that as a magician or a theogist, you are not bound by, by destiny like other people are. You can, you can find your own path. So in, in effect, walking a magical or theurgical path is taking the option of freedom. You can, you can act as you see fit. But the thing is that once you're in a situation where you can act as you see fit, you start to realize that with power comes responsibility and that you can't do what you want. You have to live in harmony with everyone else. You start to realize that everything's interconnected and that every action that you take has, has consequences. Um, that's sort of a, a, a long-winded explanation draw, drawing, drawing from various sources. But um, one, of the, one of Crowley's greatest achievements was synthesizing a lot of information and putting it together um, in a form that's easy to understand. Now, also, another thing that Crowley said, which, which verifies what Bruce was saying, is that he, he said that a man who's walking his true will has the inertia of the universe behind him. And the way I see that is that it's like stepping into a fast-moving river. So you have three options. Either you can go against the, the movement of the river, in which case you're going nowhere, you're being swept backwards. Or you can go directly perpendicular to the, to the path of the, of the river, in which case you're not actually going straight across, but you're sw being swept downstream. Or you can move with the flow of the river and so that way um, you're making incredible pro progress that actually that river represents represents your true will and by working your true will you have the inertia of the universe behind you it's pushing you to accomplish that which you need to accomplish in Taoism they have a very similar concept they call it the um, the path of no action so again you step into um, a fast-moving river and let yourself be swept along. And that is the path that you should be on. That's a very so interesting way of yeah. looking at that. That Bruce, is a great perspective. Yeah, yeah Bruce, Bruce was talking about how sometimes you, when you know that you're, you're acting in accordance with your destiny, like everything's going really well for you. So that ties in with that idea of stepping into a river. So these are all um, philemic concepts. They're you know, familiar to anyone who's, that have studied the, the works of Crowley, but he's expressed them all in a um, in a very easy to understand form. So, so that was a very long winded answer. No, no, that was a very comprehensive answer, and I appreciate it. Thank you. So then the next question uh, will be 
Um, is it our task to find and fulfill our destiny or to transcend our, our destiny and be free of uh, such things? As theurgists, as individuals, uh, um, what then is uh, uh, the ultimate uh, path uh, to follow? Because if you're following a destiny, you're still uh, being controlled. You know, your, your, your life is scripted. Um, there isn't as much free will if you, you have a destiny to fulfill. Uh, and what is there if you transcend the destiny? Like what options uh, would you have to be um, to, to gain freedom from what? I can take a stab at that maybe. I, okay. um, I, and in fact, I think um, I would go back to uh, what uh, Tony was saying. And, and in fact, I found uh, Crowley's ideas on this also very informative um, that your free will should be to uh, follow your true will. I mean, that should be what you, what you should be try, excuse me, trying to do and um, what you would want to do. That should, uh, if you understand well enough your true will, then you would naturally want to follow your true will uh, and not fight against it. So I think in that sense, I would say, why would you want to transcend your destiny? Now, that's different from transcending fate. So fate is, in a sense, refers to all of the lower forces that act upon us. And um, whereas if we take destiny to be essentially... Um, the gift, our gift of life from the gods, then um, it's a question of the problem is to is mistaking um, fate and destiny. And okay. if if I think if if you understand your destiny well enough, you realize that that is that is in fact what you would want to do. I mean, you could exert your free will to do something different, but. You, I wouldn't say you're transcending your destiny, but you're in some sense subverting your destiny um, or diminishing your destiny. Um, and what would normally incline somebody to do that would be being more subject to those uh, those lower forces. So, um, you know, to take Tony's example um, of, um, you know, somebody that gets angry and and uh, I'll say just just. Uh, uh, stabs the other person or something like that does something something bad um, that was probably the, their passions that made them do that whereas um, unless that was their destiny which which could conceivably be the case but uh, more likely they were subject there to their to the lower forces of their of their psyche and um, if they had followed their true destiny they would have reacted in that situation in a, in a different way. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, we, 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 when we, 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 especially in this culture, we uh, love freedom. And so um, anything that seems to suggest um, some limits, some things that we cannot do, um, we, uh, we react against that. Um, but I think this is the important thing about understanding 
um, destiny in the sense of a divine destiny, a destiny given to us by the gods, is that um, it is a kind of, of, of freedom in itself. And um, it's a sort of freedom you wouldn't want to to be able to um, or wouldn't want to to try and go against, um, because in a sense, it's going against it would be hurting yourself. Um, but it, these are these are difficult issues, and I've I've just been, you know, um, reading some more of um, of um, Hellenic philosophy on some of these topics as well, and it's it's. Uh, it's it's difficult to get your mind around, and I think Crowley did a very good job of uh, of uh, presenting it in a way that that makes it a little bit more sensible. But the Stoics also, you know, talked about um, understanding uh, that the universe, in a sense, was all under the governance of the gods or of a of a universal logos, and um, that um, you know that in a sense. Um, we were not playing our role if we fought against that uh, logos. It was kind of like a uh, actor in a play that decides, well, I don't want to say those lines. I'm just going to say some other lines and um, that they, they won't be really fulfilling their, their, uh, their life if they do that. Wow. Tony. Um, I really like Bruce's, um, insistence on needing to dis- to distinguish between lower forces and higher forces. I think that's incredibly important. Um, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but this is my personal feeling that, that inherent within the spiritual path is the idea of submission, where you submit to the divine. So the your higher self or your holy guardian angel enables you to work your way up the tree of life or work your way through the planetary spheres to give you access to the divine and then you submit to it. Um, and it's it's reminiscent of that episode where Jesus is in the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified and he says, um, Father, may this cup be taken away from me. And then in the end he says, um, not my will but thine will be done. It's so, something along those lines. So basically... He submits himself to his path, even though he doesn't want to be on that path. So with the idea of submission, I think people realize that it's important to submit to a path. And that is actually why people who join cults are so vulnerable. The thing is that they realize that they have to submit. And what the cult leader does is the cult leader portrays himself as someone who shows you the way to the divine so then people rather than submitting to the divine submit to the cult leader and then they're in then they're in a position where they can be taken advantage of so the cult leader is basically tapping in to this inherent understanding that in order to progress on the path we have to submit and that's actually what differentiates the the left-hand path from the right-hand path the left-hand path is basically a path of not giving, not dying to the ego from indulging yourself, whereas the right-hand path, which takes you to the divine, ultimately involves submission. And you see the same thing in Buddhism, where um, you're absorbed into the one. You give up, you submit, 
and you and you um and you're absorbed and you're absorbed into the one. So, but again, when you submit to the divine, as Bruce pointed out, it's very important to be able to distinguish between between lower forces and higher forces. So, if you tapped into your higher self, you can consult with your higher self or your holy guardian angel for that information. If you're not, that's where divination comes in. This is why the material that Bruce has been teaching is is so important. Um, the, the, as he pointed out, the Greeks were heavily into divination. So if you're in a situation where you're not quite sure what to do, um, you go to your favorite method of divination in order to fine-tune your path. Very, very true, and th- that greatly expanded on uh, what uh, Bruce had uh, shared. Um, I recently, uh, in my last submission that got published, I guess I'll share it publicly now since uh, it's going to be published in uh, an upcoming uh, anthology. Um, at two points in my uh, own travels, uh, as I, you know, I, I was in like the spiritual or the archetypal you know, type of uh, level of my being and working from that uh, level, uh, I was given the same words. Uh, the first time uh, they were given to me by uh, Thor and uh, the second time uh, by Zeus. So there's that thunder you know, theme. I've always been attuned to thunder and lightning since I was a very small child. I find thunderstorms you know, very uh, comforting. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the words. And again, they were the exact same words. Uh, remember, you already are that which you most wish to be. You already have everything you need to create anything you want. All you need to do is decide what you want to uh, create. And um, that utterance um, seems to precede a lot of creative activity. And uh, the creative activity um, is usually very archetypal in its uh, contents and showing archetypal themes that are timeless, but very human at the same time in in terms of mortality and all that that entails. So there seems to be a synthesis, and and both of them become one, so they stop being like levels, and they become part of a continuum. So just like the primary and secondary colors are all part of the, 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 uh, you know, prismatic spectrum or, or the rainbow, it's the same type of thing. So what seemed at first to be like a lower self and then a, a, a higher self and an in-between self that, uh, you know, connects them are seen as part of the same thing. And, uh, um, and, and again, I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm trying to articulate things uh, I don't normally articulate. Um, but seen from like the, uh, the mortal standpoint, destiny becomes scary because, uh, it it doesn't seem something like something you're in control of, and from the archetypal level, it's part of a timeless uh, tale. Um, and then from like a spiritual level, um, th- the heroic path of the archetypes and it, the stories are usually told in that way uh, becomes like the ladder of becoming or the path of uh, becoming, where potential that is latent gets a chance to develop and, and free itself. So w- what I found, um, you know, in terms of the, the levels is 
there's a certain level of conditioning that you get. And that's, that was brought up today earlier in the conversation. And we act uh, from that level of conditioning to a great degree, a much greater degree than we think. And once you start like uh, becoming aware of your program patterns, uh, you see that even some of the escapes uh, from your program patterns were program patterns in themselves. And it becomes, how do you free yourself from all this uh, programming? And granted, some of the programming is useful and uh, has been uh, beneficial and life-affirming, but some of the uh, programming uh, perpetuates old uh, familial and societal and uh, religious uh, patterns that create a lot of misery. So it, then it becomes a heroic effort you know, to kind of sort all that out and you start tapping into the, the archetypal or the demonic, you know, that, that in-between level uh, that uh, is preserved through uh, like myths and legends and stories and nowadays comic books and, and comic book movies and, and all sorts of uh, uh, literature. Uh, but then they, they reach to, to someplace where you're part of something. And it's almost like the relationship between a deva and an elemental. And again, I don't know how much sense I'm making, but uh, th these are kind of like, this is kind of like where my thoughts uh uh, we're going that this all seems to be part of a, a process uh, even a digestion process that isn't ours it's, it's like we're part of something's digestion and and this is the uh, these are the mechanisms of it um if you look at the spiritual path in terms of the tree of life um the, the very top grades, the, the grade corresponding to Keta in the Golden Dawn system was known as Ipsissimus. And Ipsissimus refers to he who is most like himself. And okay. other people have actually referred to genius as being most like yourself. Because after all, the spiritual, it, if you see yourself as an onion, I mean, this is a really old. Um, analogy if you see yourself like an onion that it's a matter of peeling off the layers one by one until eventually you get to the very center of the onion and that is who you really are so the spiritual path is is like a voyage of discovery finding out who you are and and at the very core of our being we're a divine spark we're part of the divine that the gnostics would refer to um, us as being a divine spark that comes into manifestation. There's even a, um, um, a hermetic text that talks about a divine spark coming into manifestation. And as it comes down through the planetary spheres, it has, it has material from each of those planetary spheres accreting to that particular divine spark in various ratios. So it's like a... Um, and that accounts for differences in personality because as, as the sparks come into manifestation, you're going to have different amounts of each of the planetary materials and each of the planetary materials impart different aspects of the personality. So in effect, to discover who you are, it's a matter of peeling off those planetary accretions, um, the stellar accretions, and finding divine spark at our core. That's, that's what the spiritual path is all about. Um, if you look at the, just going off on a bit of a tangent here, if you look at the major arcana cards as representing the, the spiritual path, the very last card in the Rider Waite deck, the world card, features the divine hermaphrodite, 
and it has um, the symbols of the four elements at each of the corners. So what it's representing is that you're bringing the four elements into balance within you. You're bringing your male and female aspects into, in, into balance. You're basically finding out who you truly are. The, the spiritual path is, is, a, is a path of, um, of, of self-discovery. And so whether you look at it from a Kabbalistic standpoint, of it, whether you're looking at it through tarot cards, it, it, it all amounts to the same thing. It all amounts to, to finding who you truly are. So, I mean, that sort of ties into what you were saying. Yes, it does. Thank you. And synchronistically, <laughs> the Order of the Golden Fleece, which, again, is doing political and, you know, like social type of things also, uh, our current project is called The Four Elements. Uh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> cool. So uh, your explanation uh, suddenly sheds a light on that endeavor, a different light on it. So thank you. Bruce? Yeah, it was a beautiful uh, description. Um, I, I, it made Tony's reference to the tarot made me um, think about the differences between undifferentiated unity and differentiated unity. That, um, and in fact, you can you can um, think of the uh, the fool, the first card, as representing undifferentiated unity, and that's kind of the unconscious state that we think of children being in. They're just natural. They, they do what they like and, you know, they, they react the way they react and, and um, they seem to be um, in sort of a, sort of a blissful state. And as we, we get older, um, we, um, we, we develop these internal conflicts uh, where really different parts of our psyches are being pulled in different directions and, you know that certainly can be represented by the by the other cards in the major arcana, but um, the process then and and theurgy again is helping this, but because by putting us in contact with all of these different archetypal um, all, all these archetypes, I'll just say, putting us in contact with these archetypes, allowing us to discover them, become acquainted with them negotiate with them um, and ultimately to to work with them um, which is getting that sort of divine guidance then we can reintegrate going back to that state of unity but it's a state of unity that's articulated we kind of, we know all the pieces but the pieces are all put back together and um, as Tony described the world card that very very neatly uh, um, uh, represents that, as he said, integrating both the uh, male and the female aspects of our psyche, which we all have, and integrating the elemental aspects of the of the psyche as well. And um, um, you know, the 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 world card also often has some sort of instrument of magic. Uh, in my Pythagorean tarot, it's actually a a temple key, and um, um, that again is 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 a result of that of that integration is becoming essentially more um, at home in those higher realms where uh, spiritual things happen and magical things happen. So I think you know it's um, yeah I I really um, your your description 
uh, Hercules really, really spoke to me. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our journey together today, and I, I feel like this uh, line of inquiry uh, has been very fruitful and uh, very edifying, so we will continue it uh, next uh, month. Um, I would like to give uh, both of you the opportunity uh, to let people know how they can further explore your world and uh, um, your work. So I put links uh, already in with the description of the show, and every now and then, you know, I'll draw attention uh, to you and your work. But uh, I guess share for the people who don't, who are not on Facebook, um, how they can get in contact with you. Tony, you want to start? Um, Facebook actually is the is the best way for me. Um, I'm still having issues with my website, so. I don't really want to be directing people to that. Um, I'm sort of embarrassed that every every time we talk, I'm sort of steering people away from my website and, and, and onto Facebook. But it's just there are no issues with Facebook. But I suppose there must be a few people out there who aren't on Facebook, even though it is the most popular social platform in the world. So I have both an author page and I also have... Um, a personal page, but I suggest the, the author page as a um, as, as a first point of contact because the stuff there is you know specific to um uh, to my work and it's also specific to um I have archaeological discoveries there and things that are things that are relevant to, to ancient Greece and, and and ancient Egypt particularly. So um it, it's all stuff that's going to be readily of interest. And you're active yeah. on Facebook too, and you post uh, a lot uh, on Facebook. So uh, Tony's yeah, a lot probably, of fun to probably, follow. Probably and... too active. No, and you 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 get back to people, which is uh, which is really uh, great. So uh, if anybody wants to contact Tony, Facebook is the best uh, place, and Tony will get back to you. Um, Bruce, yeah. your websites are a, a treasure trove of uh, information. And I've included them on my website and occasionally I post them on uh, Facebook. And because, like Tony, I haven't worked on my website for a while, they changed the program and I, and I haven't learned the new one yet. I'll be moving my Hermeon to Facebook. So uh, links to your sites will be there too. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Well, I'm almost a compliment to Tony. So I'm, I'm uh, not very active on, on Facebook, but I do have, as he said, uh, a couple of websites. So um, the, uh, there's two. Um, one is um, wisdomofhypatia.com. So that's all one word, wisdom of Hypatia. And Hypatia is H-Y-P-A-T-I-A. And the... Uh, other website is uh, opsopaus.com, and that's O-P-S-O-P-A-U-S.com. And um, uh, on those websites, uh, you can send me an uh, email, um, and I, I check them pretty regularly. So if you send me some email, I'll, I'll certainly uh, get back to you on that. And as, uh, as Hercules said, I, I post a lot of my material um, on those websites, and I also uh, have um, auxiliary or helpful material uh, that go with my books as well. 
and, and the books are awesome. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to have them in my library and to be using them in uh, the classes uh, that I teach. I must share another synchronicity with you. Uh, when we had the, um, uh, the Hypatia versus Hypatia conversation a while ago, uh, recently uh-huh, one yeah. of the things, activities I do with uh, kids here locally as part of enrichment programs, uh, I had a, uh, a girl who was Greek uh, whose name was Hypatia. Uh, you know, the, uh-huh. the Greek tradition. But when I called her yeah. Ipatia, she said to call her Hypatia. And I said, why oh, Hypatia? Because no. that's what it is in English. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> well, thanks to both of you. Uh, this was awesome. And I'm looking forward to our next one. Uh, and thanks to all who've uh, listened in. Um, we have time for a quick moment of wisdom from our guests before I uh, do the closing music. So, uh, Bruce, do you have anything, any last words of wisdom to offer our spiritual seekers who are tuning in? The sage desires what destiny dictates. Awesome. And Tony? If you raise any energy at all in rituals, focus towards planetary healing what we really need at this point in time. Very, very true. Thanks again to both of you and to all at home. Uh, I wish everyone joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Thanks and for having thank us. And thank you for being here. And now my board decided not to cooperate. <laughs> here we go. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.